an elderly couple went into hospital and uh, the husband was very, very sick, really not well at all. And uh, he had lots of tests done. They wired him up with electrodes, they put drips on him, they took blood from him, they took samples out of him. And at the end of it all, the consultant took the wife out of the room and spoke to her on her own and said, I've got bad news for you, I'm afraid. She said, what is it? And he, and, uh, he said, well, your husband has a very rare form of anemia and I'm afraid he will certainly die from this. But there is a cure. There is a cure. A cure, she said. Yes, he said. He said, what you must do now, you must take your husband home and you must treat him like a king. You must fix him three fantastic meals every day cook breakfast, a nice lunch, a scone and tea in the afternoon and a three-course meal in the evening every day. He said, are you sure? He said, yes, I'm sure. But that's not all, he said. He said, you must also look after him. If he needs his slippers, go and get them. If he needs the paper, don't let him do it himself, go and get it. Give him a back rub every morning and a full body massage every evening. She said, are you sure? He said, yes, I'm sure. He said, but that's not all, he said. Because he has also, now his immune system is very, very open. It's, it's been uh, damaged in many ways. You must make sure your house is spotless from top to bottom. There mustn't be a single cobweb, a single piece of dirt, a single mark, a single speck of dust on any windowsill. She said, are you sure? He said, yes, I'm sure. And then he said, have you got any questions? She said, I haven't got any questions, but she didn't look very happy. And then he said, shall I tell your husband, shall I break the bad news to your husband or will you do it? She said, no, no, I'll do it. So she goes into where her husband is lying and she takes his hand gently and with a tear in her eye, she looks at him and he says, what is it, what's wrong? Tell me the truth, what's going on? And with a tear in her eye, she turns to him and says, doctor says you're going to die. Love does stuff. Love does stuff. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians, just at the end now, right at the very end. Uh, You thought we finished in the summer, but then this is take two. So Jonathan did gifts a couple of weeks ago, another look at gifts, and today we're having another look at this thing called love. And just to remind us where we are here, so this is Corinth, a city in ancient Greece, uh, the capital city of that country, a big city for commerce and trading, had two harbours, had a big university, centre of education. And yet there were a lot of problems in that city. There was, there was, uh, there was sexual immorality, there was greed, there was envy in the church. There were all sorts of things that wrong which Paul knew about because the church had written to him, we know this, and the church had sent people to him and to ask him specific questions. So Paul writes back into the, into the fabric of this society where so much seems to be wrong. There was envy, boasting, gossiping. People were arguing about gifts even in the church. Which gift is most important? Some were saying, well, I have a gift of prophecy, but this fellow over here, he says we should all speak in tongues. Someone else was saying, well, what about teaching? Surely that's important. And another person would say, well, why do we need all these gifts anyway? And what about the Lord's Supper? And, and what about our unity? And Paul writes to them back and says, I will answer all these questions, this wave of questions that's coming at me one by one. I will answer them, but you need to just pause, stop for a minute. And 1 Corinthians 13 is radically different from the first 12 chapters or from 14 onwards. We think Paul may have written it separately. 
as a, as a poem of love and inserted it into the letter. It's so different. But Paul says, we need to just put a pause on this, shift the agenda, and talk about something that's much more important, something you haven't got hold of, and something which will tear you apart as a church if you don't get this. So Paul writes to them <clears throat> this famous passage on love. And I'll read the first half. And we'll come to the second half a little bit later. I may speak in the languages of men or of angels, but if I have not love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I may have the gift of prophecy, I may have the faith, I may be able to fathom all mysteries, and I may have the faith to move mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. I may give all I possess to the poor and hand over my body for hardship, but if I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. A big list of what this love actually is. So Paul talks about, for example, patience. Waiting patiently, he says, is love. Many of us are not good at this. I'm not good at this. Many of us get cross when we're standing in a queue to pay for something and something's going on at the front, which doesn't seem to be transactional. It seems to be conversational. Many of us are not, are not very pleased when someone cuts in front of us in a car on the road. We find that difficult. Patience is difficult. Not, but Paul says, not needing to be heard first, not having a short fuse, not being touchy, not flying off the handle, is love. He talks about a record of wrongs. We, we, we remember things that people have done to us, and sometimes we forgive them, but we don't really forgive them. We still remember the time when that person said that thing to us or slighted us in some way or offended us in church as well. We may avoid certain people. And Paul says... Listen, not bearing a grudge, not avoiding talking to certain people, in church perhaps, who have upset us, is love. This is hard stuff. This is practical stuff. He talks about not being envious, not boasting, not, not being proud. He says, love does not dishonor others. It's not gossiping about other people. Love doesn't promote itself. Love keeps no record of wrongs a big long list of attributes. And he says, if you don't get this right, Corinthians, and readers of the New Testament, then it doesn't matter what else you do. You can have the best theology in your church. You can have the best house group or the best discussions. You can have a quiet time every day, come to church every Sunday on time, and it still makes no difference. If we don't have love, it's a waste of time. In fact, he says it's a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's what God hears when we give him our theology and our prayers if, if we're nursing anger and impatience and these things, Paul says, you're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's hard talk. So, this love is not about feelings. Now, don't get me wrong here. Feelings are good, and the Bible says feelings are good. And the Bible talks about other sorts of love, which are, which are very much about feelings. The Bible has different sorts of love, so it talks about eros, 
or sexual love, which is very much about feelings. It talks about philistia, the love between brothers and sisters. The Bible talks about storge, the love within a family, which again is to do with feelings. But the word used here is agape love, A-G-A-P-E, you've probably heard of it. Agape love is not to do with feelings. That is the word in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not about feeling, it's about doing. And uh, <clears throat> when we talked about this, when I talked about this rather in June, really that's where we got to. And that's where we ended up. This love acts and acts now. This love does stuff, it's not about feelings. So today, what I would like to do has gone a little bit further. And I'm not sure if it's a little bit further or, or stepping back even a little bit more. <clears throat> what I would like to do <clears throat> is to peel back this idea of love, reduce it down, to boil it down to its absolute minimum. Say, so, well, what is it? What is this love that does stuff? What actually is it? And why is it that important? You see, at the end of this chapter, Paul says everything else will disappear. Everything else fades away. But love, sacrificing, doing love, somehow has a place in eternity. Love remains in some way that we have to try and understand. <clears throat> so do it under three headings. This love that does stuff is a single act. This love that does stuff will make us vulnerable. And this love that does stuff will change us. Let's talk about how simple this love is. And remember... Simple doesn't mean easy. Somebody once said to me, the Christian life is very straightforward, but it's not easy. We know what we're supposed to do, don't we? But doing it is, is not easy, often. So first of all, this love is a single act. What do I mean by that? This love is a single act. This love is something to do now. It's not something to think about that you might do later. It's not something to go and even pray about. It's not a strategy. Love is tactical, not strategic. Some of you will understand that from discussions at work, etc. The world loves strategies, doesn't it? The world loves big plans. Uh, work, what's the three-year business plan? Give us the three-year business plan, we need to see that. Government, what's the five-year Brexit plan? We need to know what's going to happen. We must know that. Even in church, we're talking about what's the vision for the next few years. These things are important. But... At, the, at, at, the, at its root, at the core level, at the atomic level, when you break this down, God's kingdom isn't built through strategies. It's built through simple, single, loving acts. <coughs> this single act of love isn't easy. It requires us to be bold. Sometimes it requires us to say things we would rather not say. Love takes guts. Doing love takes guts. Sometimes, for example, maybe we need to say to somebody, I love you, and we've not said that in a long time. It's not easy. Maybe we need to say to somebody, I'm sorry. I think I'm sorry are the two hardest words in the English language to say in church as well as out. I think I'm sorry is incredibly difficult to say. When was the last time you said, I'm sorry? Because we all, you know, should we make mistakes, don't we? So we should be saying that. And not just to God. It's easy to say it to God because he's so great and majestic and quite far away. We can kind of say it. But saying it to somebody else is quite hard. You know, uh, Phil Jump, who's the regional minister for uh, the Northwest, he once said to us, he was giving a, a talk on uh, conflicts in churches, and he said, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing how many conflicts in churches would go away 
if somebody had the guts to stand up and say, I'm sorry, I didn't know it would affect you like that. I'm sorry, I didn't realize you would take it like that. I'm sorry, I didn't understand the implications of what I said. It's not easy to say. Simple. It's not easy. It means this single act of love means we have to encounter people we prefer not to meet. The person we don't want to talk to in church. The unpopular person, as we, the, uh, uh, the Bobby, as we talked about this morning at school, at work, at uh, wherever, we, wherever we are. It means encountering folks like that. The elderly relative who, who's a drain on us. It means encountering people who are not like us. The single mother who can't pay the bills. It means not turning away when we see the news because it can be overwhelming, can't it? I, I don't remember a time when we're seeing so much disaster as we're seeing in these last few weeks and months. And we've, the news has completely forgotten about Sierra Leone and the, and the mudslide two months ago where villages were just covered in mud. It seems to have completely forgotten about the devastating floods in Bangladesh and northern India where millions are homeless. And we've just moved on, we move on and we move on. And, you know, there's Myanmar, Yemen, the war in Yemen, the war in Syria, the people who right now are trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea on dinghies and rafts to try and get to Europe. All this is going on. It's easy to turn away. Uh, But love says we won't turn away. Love says we will try to act. Maybe that's giving. Maybe it's praying. Maybe it's speaking out. This is love. This is not easy, but this is love. And we don't even necessarily have to give money to show love. Showing love often doesn't mean giving money. So um, <clears throat> at my previous church in Withenshaw, we often had people who wandered in asking for money. Uh, I remember one chap who wandered in re- relatively recently, and he was obviously sleeping very rough in the civic centre, and he said, I, I was speaking to him, and he said, um, he was sleeping there in the night in his sleeping bag, and some guy's urinated on his sleeping bag, and he needs £15 to go to Argos to get a new sleeping bag. So I said, well, which is our policy, you know, I will, after the service, I will drive you to Argos and we'll get the sleeping bag. Just have to wait till the end of the service. So he didn't wait. So sometimes giving money isn't the right thing, but sometimes it is. We have to make that decision. I remember in Manchester, I don't work in Manchester anymore, there's a lot of people on the street. And sometimes, not always, if I had my lunch with me, I'd just say, do you want a sandwich? Which to me is better than giving money. We all have to make our own decision of how we manage these things. But we have to face up to them. Love is a single act that, account, that is not easy and that means we have to encounter people. Jesus told the story about encountering, actually, in Luke's version of the greatest commandment that we talked about earlier, the Good Samaritan story follows immediately when someone says, well, who is my neighbor? And you know the story well. A man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was set upon by robbers and left uh, without his possessions, left the dead. And a Levite and a priest, a temple, hempel, te- temple helper, walked that way, but they passed by on the other side. And uh, <clears throat> when we tell the story, we, all, we always focus on the Good Samaritan, because that's right, he is the Good Samaritan. But what about the other two guys, I would ask? Why, why didn't they stop? Why did the priest and the Levite walk past? Was it because they didn't have any money? I think they probably did have. Was it because they didn't care? Actually, I think they probably did care. The Pharisees and the scribes in the Bible actually are people who did care. They did care. But they were caring about the wrong things. They were focused on rules and implementation of rules rather than 
actually looking after the people as they should have been. So, but they did care. They just didn't know how to show it. Now, Jesus didn't tell us why they walked past. He didn't tell us that. But I think we often walk past because we fear the encounter. We don't want to look that person in the eye when we see them. Um, it's awkward. <clears throat> it's inconvenient. You know, maybe the priest and the Levite walked past because they didn't have time. I think that's, that's quite possible. Often we're, we're in a hurry, aren't we? We don't have time to do love. And uh, Rick, I think it's Rick Warren, writing uh, 40 Days of Purpose quite some years ago now, Purpose Driven Church, talked about love. And he talked about this. And he said, love is spelt T-I-M-E. Love is spelt T-I-M-E. That's really hard, isn't it? Because we haven't got that. <laughs> love is spelt T-I-M-E. It's awkward. It's inconvenient. It's a single act. So that's love that does stuff is a single act. Let's move on. Love that does stuff can make us vulnerable. This simple love, this simple act that God wants us to do can make us vulnerable. And just to be clear, we're not talking about becoming a doormat. It's never right and it's never part of God's will for us to remain in a situation of bullying or abuse of any sort just because we think that God wants us to do that. That's not right. But in an equal relationship, in an equal relationship, love often makes us vulnerable. In fact, love is a kind of weakness breaking into our world, a kind of weakness that comes into the world. If you're the one who stands up and says, I'm sorry, you feel vulnerable. Why am I apologizing? Why isn't he apologizing? He he started it, whoever it is. It makes you feel weak. That's the power of love. That's the kingdom working in us, in a world that despises weaknesses. So we make ourselves vulnerable, don't we? When we say, well, we say, well, look, you know, I think you've done as much wrong as I have, but I'll, I'll say I'm sorry. That's not easy. That makes us feel weak. It's a kind of weakness. Love makes us vulnerable when we hold back, when we're being insulted, but we decide, well, I could insult you back as well, but I'm choosing not to do that. It makes us vulnerable. When we, when we are attacked with negative comments and criticism and we choose to give a positive comment back, it makes us feel vulnerable because we want, want to strike back, but we're not doing that. We choose not to do that. So this love that makes us vulnerable makes us Christ-like. Christ showed ultimate vulnerability, being born, God being born in a, in a stable to a poor family. God dying the death of a criminal on a cross was ultimately vulnerable, ultimately vulnerable, and in the eyes of this world, weakness. But it may, may, when we show this kind of vulnerability in love, it makes us like Jesus, and this is a glimpse of how God's kingdom works. God isn't asking us for the five-year strategy to dominate the world. God is asking us to be obedient, doing tiny acts of goodness through which he will win the world. God doesn't need us to bring, bring him a strategy to dominate the world. He needs us to be obedient in tiny acts of goodness through which he will win the world. As someone once said to me, our witness needs to be more testimonial than dictatorial. Let's show people God's love rather than just telling it to them. <clears throat> this is mustard seed economics. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, isn't it? It's the tiniest seed. It's almost irrelevant. You wouldn't notice it. If you walked past it, you'd stand on it. And yet, it grows into one of the mightiest plants. 
in nature. So much so that birds and animals come and nest in its branches. Does it make sense to the world, this mustard seed economics? A way that um, perhaps a more modern analogy, I would say, is like a daisy coming through the concrete. You know, sometimes you walk along the road and there's a little flower peeping through, you think, how did that get there? That shouldn't be there. We expected blackness. We expected grey. I expected you to insult me the same way I insulted you. I didn't expect you to show me kindness after all I've done for you. But here's this little daisy peeping through the concrete. Takes us by surprise. God's kingdom engaging in small acts of mercy, like a daisy breaking through the concrete. So, stepping back again, this love that does stuff, we've talked about it, how it's a single act, a simple act, do it now, no need to go and think about it, go and pray about it, we can just do it now. Love can make us vulnerable, as Jesus was vulnerable. And then thirdly, and finally, this love will change us. This love will change us. And uh, I'm going to give you an old example and a modern-day example. You've probably come across <clears throat> in the Old Testament the idea of gleaning, gleaning with an N. And what this was was, a, was a, a law that God gave his people when they entered the land. And so if they had a field that went up to the window over there, he would say, don't harvest right up to the edge of it, just harvest up to here and leave these, yard, these few yards for the poor so that they can glean grain from the harvest themselves. And he would say, when you're uh, harvesting your vineyard and picking grapes, if grapes fall onto the floor, don't pick them up, just leave them, and the poor will have them. And uh, when I first read that, I thought, that just sounds like very kind of uh, inefficient, you know, very kind of odd way of doing things. Why don't? Why didn't God say, look, poor person, here's a field, sort out your own life and don't bother me. Why didn't God say, just give them a vineyard and forget about them? Because, you know, you've done your bit. And I believe that God said, do this because, two reasons. One is so that the poor themselves will be doing something. But secondly, so that you will have to think about this. Every time you harvest, you will have to think, oh, I must stop at the edge of the field. Leave that. Every time a grape drops onto the floor and our natural human instinct is say, I'll pick it up. Nope, stop. Think about the poor. Think about the poor because they will be constantly, at least frequently, in your mind and you will have to think and that will change you. That will change the way you are as a person. And I think the modern day example is food banks. <clears throat> food banks. Uh, at Bramall we had a food bank that was associated with Hazel Grove. And uh, I love the food bank because, you know, again, we could have said at the start of the year, let's just write a check and forget about it. That's efficient. It's, it's very efficient. Just write a check for a few hundred pounds, give it to the food bank, and then we've got things to do. We've got important things to do in our church, important business to see to. But no, the food bank idea is every time you go to the supermarket, you will have to think, tin of beans to me, oh, and another tin of beans for the food bank. Box of cereal for me, oh yeah, and I must remember another box of cereal for the food bank. And that thinking changes as that processing where you're constantly reminded of, have, of acts of love. That changes us as people. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Saying, I'm sorry, we'd rather not do that. It's inconvenient having to think about buying an extra box of cereal all the time. It's awkward having to look somebody in the eye who we'd rather not on the street tell you, if it's uncomfortable, if it's inconvenient, if it's awkward, 
it's probably love. It's probably the love, the agape love that Paul is talking about. The next time we feel, well, I haven't got time for that, it's awkward, I'd rather not do it, it's probably love. Small acts of love will change us. Small acts of love change everything. Isn't this exactly what Jesus did? People were confused by Jesus. This guy just does small acts of love. They wanted someone to sort the Romans out. They wanted someone to end the occupation. What's the big plan, Jesus? Show us the strategy. What's the five-year plan for getting the Romans out? And yet, this fellow, Jesus, spends all his time eating with thieves and prostitutes and talking about some kingdom that's not quite here. What good is that? We need someone to drive the Romans out. We need the plan. What good is that? These tiny acts of love. And so Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter. Put your sword away. Don't you know that I could call upon my father and he will at once send 12 legions of angels? I could do that. I could do that and not go to the cross at all. But that's not the way of the kingdom. Put your sword away. A daisy breaking through the concrete, a speck of goodness, a healing here, a feeding there, a small miracle here. God asks us to do tiny acts of goodness, a daisy breaking through the concrete. How did that get there? It's surprising. Didn't expect to see that. I expected blackness. I expected a grey world because that's what I'm used to and that's what I'm used to dealing in. And yet here's a speck of goodness breaking through. The daisy breaking through the concrete is the angry response you could give, but you choose not to. The daisy breaking through the concrete is the patient smile when you really feel like saying, for goodness sake, you just get on with it. The daisy breaking through the concrete is when you put the hand on the shoulder of somebody who's never liked you, but they're going through a tough time. That's the daisy breaking through the concrete. The daisy breaking through the concrete takes people by surprise. Didn't expect that, this small act of love. Why are you doing that? I expected blackness. It doesn't make sense to this world. It's weakness, it's foolishness. Such is the kingdom of God. Didn't God say so? I will make foolish the wisdom of this world. I will frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Is this not the way of the kingdom? Some people talk about the oblique nature of God's purposes. I love that phrase, the oblique nature of God's purposes. That we see things often in black and white, this or that, fight or flight. Go this way, and let's just attack the Romans and drive them out. Or go this way, perpendicular, and let's just give up, because and, and, this is our lot. But God says, no, there's another way. There's a third way. There's always a third way with God. There's always a third way in the New Testament. The oblique nature of God's kingdom. As this weakness breaks through into our world, we see the nature of the kingdom of God. We see weakness, love, small acts of love, invading this world. And one, uh, one speaker put it like this. Jesus points to a new order of things where the outsiders are in, while those who smugly believe themselves to be at the centre of God's purposes suddenly find they have excluded themselves from the party. Where the experts are the fools, I will frustrate the wisdom of the, of the wise. Where children are the wise ones. If you cannot enter the kingdom of God like a child, you will not enter it. Where angels visit shepherds, laborers, lowly people from Moss Side and Withenshaw, God shows himself to them first. 
where women, unreliable, unacceptable witnesses in the first century are the first resurrection witnesses. This is the oblique nature of the kingdom of God. Weakness breaking through into our world, the daisy breaking through the concrete, the surprise. I'll read that again without interrupting. I think it's such a good quote. Jesus points to a new order of things where the outsiders are in, while those who smugly believe to themselves to be at the centre of God's purposes suddenly find they've excluded themselves from the party, where the experts are the fools, where children are the wise ones, where angels visit shepherds, and where women are the first resurrection witnesses. I started... Right, this is a carry-on sermon from June because I didn't have enough time in June. I started writing about the second half of this um, chapter, which is wonderful, and wrote two pages and thought, that's too much. So here's just two minutes on the second half of this chapter. And so Paul talks about the permanence of love, that somehow love, this foolishness, this tiny daisy that anybody could step on, breaking through the concrete, somehow will outlast everything. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. A bit like the Corinthians. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That somehow in eternity, there'll be no reason for faith, because God will be there, we'll see him. In eternity, there'll be no reason to hope, because we're already there. In eternity, there's no reason to prophesy, no reason for tongues, but somehow love, sacrificing single acts of love, still has a place. Why is that? Why is that? It's strange, isn't it? And I I think the reason is that's our calling. That's our calling. This thing, this thing, this love that changes us is our calling. Let me ask you, what do you think is uh, the greatest calling of us as Christians? Is it to understand Scripture? That's a Good calling, but it's not the greatest calling. Is it to pray? That's a good calling, but it's not the greatest calling. Is our greatest calling to make disciples? That is a very high calling, but it's not the greatest calling. The greatest calling of us as Christians is for our hearts to be transformed, to become like God's, to become like God's heart. For us to be made more like Jesus through this life, through the refining acts that we have to do these small acts of love. That is our greatest calling, to become like him. And so, yeah, love will remain, because that that is how God is. In fact, um, John, just going back to what I started with at the start of the service, John, the Apostle John, who's uh, son of Zebedee, fisherman, apostle to the Lord Jesus, author of John's Gospel, author of the Revelation to John, writing in 1 John, 50 years after Jesus has died, as an old man, looking back upon his whole life, looking back on the life of Jesus, thinking, knowing the history of the people of Israel, that they started off with Moses, with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and Moses and the King David, and they eventually come to the life of Jesus, tiny vulnerable baby, 
who suffers the ultimate vulnerable death on a cross, comes to a profound realization. And writing all of this, and knowing Jesus himself, he was a, the disciple of Jesus' love, knowing all these things, and without exaggeration, without simplification, and including, encompassing everything we've said this morning, he writes, God is love. God is love which is one of the most profound statements in the New Testament. When we realize what love is about, this is God. That's why it will remain at the end of time, as Paul says. That's why we need to be changed by acts of love. God is love. God is love. It's easy to say. It's only, what, you know, eight letters, three words, three syllables. God is love. We can spit it out. And yet, this is the, this is the love that God wants us to have. This profound, simple act of love to do today. God is love. So, let's wrap up. <clears throat> this love that does stuff is a single act. Do it today. We can do love today. We don't have to go and think about it. This love that does stuff can make us vulnerable, as Jesus was vulnerable. This love that does stuff will change us. It will transform us. It's awkward. It's inconvenient. It gets in the way. It's probably love. And astonishingly, this is the way that God achieves his purposes. It, this is the way that God invades this world through these weak acts of love. This is the way that God achieves his purposes, transforming our hearts as he does. You see, power seeks to dominate, but love seeks to woo. Power seeks to enforce from above, but love seeks to fascinate from below. Power says, what's the five-year plan? But love says, do a single act today. Power seeks to enforce the established order, but love seeks to do a new thing. These acts of love, this foolishness, it's just a daisy breaking through the concrete. That's all it is. A daisy breaking through the concrete. doesn't make sense. How did it get there? don't know. Someone will probably tread on it. Probably a car will run over it by tomorrow and it'll be gone. Guess what? That's what they said about the mustard seed. Let me pray for a moment and then we'll sing again. To love is to act now. <clears throat> to love is to act now. Lord, help us to, to understand, Lord, to see your purposes. They're not that complicated. It's the call that we could make this week. It's the person we could talk to. It's the person at work or, or in our neighbourhood who needs a hand on the shoulder. This is your kingdom breaking through into our world. Perhaps you could just uh, imagine as we pray the face or the name of somebody who you find difficult. Could be somebody at work. Could be somebody in our own families. Sometimes they're the most difficult or elsewhere. Somebody that we find really hard to show love to. And remember that God isn't asking you to feel love towards them. God is asking you to do a single act for them this week. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen.